Well, on this day, indeed, we, we, we remember and we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, what many call uh, the triumphal uh, entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem uh, a week out from Good Friday and Easter on a, on a Sunday uh, into the city and uh, eventually led to the cross. And the triumphal entry is one of the stories in the life of our Lord that not only profoundly reveals to us his character, his identity, but it also reveals just how misunderstood our Lord was. And still today, the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, continues to confound the world, to be sure. I recall back in 2004, while I was in seminary, the film, The Passion of the Christ, directed by Mel Gibson, came out. At the time, I recall there were those in the film industry questioning whether there would be an interest among the public for such a film at this time, and then whether this director, uh, whether Gibson's career would survive in light of him pursuing such a religious theme. Well, the, fir- the film's first day, its debut, it grossed $23.6 million. Not the largest ever, but one of the largest in history, which perhaps continued to reveal uh, the interest among people in society and in our country uh, regarding the historical figure of Christ, this person. Most of all, I remember one particular review of the film in which the film commentator, the critic, was expressing how different the drama of the passion was to most storylines. That in most dramatic narratives, whether it's a play or film, there's three main movements. One is this exposition. You have an introduction to characters, the setting of the scene. Two is some kind of complication. There's a conflict that brings attention, a drama uh, to the story. But then almost always, there is some kind of remedy, a, a resolution as a third and final movement. But in the passion, by and large, in the passion, the climax of the story, the height of the drama, is found in the suffering and in the death of the central figure. The redemption is found not in some kind of vengeance or payback, but in the painful, cruel, unjust crucifixion of an innocent and sinless man. Something's radically different about this story and this figure. And it's what makes the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John so unique. Think about it. Many famous people have been born, lived, made their mark, and then died. But not a single one of their biographies reveal that the purpose they were born, the purpose of their life was in order for them to die and to accomplish something through that actual death. That's what we have in the gospel story. Christ was born He lived in order to die. And in the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, the disciples and those who pay close attention begin to see this truth emerge, the truth of who Jesus is, why he came. So John chapter 12, I would draw our attention to verses 12 through 19. The triumphal entry. All four Gospels mention Palm Sunday, and this is John's account. Listen now to God's word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead had continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In a significant way, this episode in the life of our Lord uh, centers around the whole notion of expectations. What kind of person do people expect the Messiah to be? What expectations do people have about his character? What do they expect him to do? It's one of the most vivid passages in the, in the gospel stories with these word pictures of large crowds gathering, the waving of palm branches, the laying down of branches, uh, the people crying out. But what are people looking for? What do they understand Jesus uh, to be? What do they expect him to do? And that, that question of expectations continues to be relevant uh, to us. Have you thought about that question? What do you expect your Lord to do in your life, in the life of us as God's corporate people, in and through the world? And how people think about that question, how people view the Lord Jesus has a powerful effect on how they live their lives, how they understand their own purpose, how they relate to God himself. And so it is well for us to ask ourselves this morning, who is Jesus to us? Is he shepherd, friend, teacher, comforter, savior? Certainly the scripture teaches that he is all of these things, but here in John 12, in the triumphal story, triumphal entry story, there's a particular aspect of our Lord's identity that takes center stage. And it is that Christ is king. As the reference to Zechariah is mentioned, behold, your king comes. Later in chapter 18 of John, when Jesus is being tried and he's before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks the question, so, you are a king? And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. But my kingdom is not from the world. It's a simple question. But do you really want a king in your life? Do we want a king ruling in our lives? What do kings do? Kings rule. Kings command. Kings act in sovereign kinds of ways. It seems to me the idea of kingship, by and large, does not sit well in American culture. When I think about the notion of kingship in American culture, my mind goes to the Gadsden flag. You may be familiar with this flag. It was created by the American leader and politician, Christopher 
Gladstone in 1775. It was used as a motto for the Continental Marines. I, I see the flag flying out today. It's the image of a, on it, a snake coiled up, its mouth open, tongue out, hissing, ready to strike. And then at the bottom, big bold letters, don't tread on me. Perhaps today it's used for a number of reasons, perhaps to communicate the desire of self-autonomy, the value of individualism. Certainly there's a, a place and a context for that. But it's the idea, no one will rule over me. The idea of a kingly rule does not sit well for many. So what are we to understand about the kingship of Jesus? It seems at first the crowds are enthusiastic. They're embracing of this coming king. They're clearly attracted to this figure, Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 12 tells us the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. They cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add, even the king, the king of Israel. It's the week of Passover. The context tells us. The historian Josephus notes that the city of Jerusalem would swell in great size, up to 2.7 million people packed in the city. There's clearly an excitement. There's an attraction to the figure of Christ. And yet all the while, Jesus knows the corruption, the treachery in the hearts of many within the crowds. Because while here on Palm Sunday, people are receiving him, shouts of acclamation, hailing him as king, just days later, on Thursday and then Friday, similar crowds are going to yell very different words. Crucify him. Crucify him. But here on Palm Sunday, they're drawn in. They're receptive. Why is that? Well, we're told in part in verse 17 the reason. The crowd who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead in the previous chapter, they had been bearing witness. News had spread of this great sign and the work Jesus had done. We see through the Gospels, Jesus' miracles and his healings draw people. But there's more to the story. It's Passover. A holy week and celebration. They celebrated with a feast that looked back to that central redemptive event in Israel's history. Deliverance from slavery in Egypt. This is an event recalling God's triumph over his enemies. And it was a celebration that also not only looked back, but it looked forward to the time when a Messiah, an anointed one, would come to deliver his people again. So there's expectation, there's anticipation, a redemption promise for the people of God. They even recite Psalm 118 a part of a group of psalms called the Hallel Psalms, meaning praise, from Psalms 113 to 118, often recited by God's people on festive occasions. Here they quote from Psalm 118, verse 25. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The verse just prior to Psalm 118, 25, verse 24. Save us, O Lord, we pray. 
This was a psalm that served as a symbol of Israel's hope that a king would come, perhaps a Davidic-like king, who would stand up essentially to the Goliaths of the world. Not just the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but the Romans. Those they see as the enemies of God and their enemies. But there's something awfully wrong in the whole story here. A tremendous misunderstanding as to the kind of redemption the Messiah would accomplish. It's evidenced in part by the use of the palm branches. Here we pass out palm branches in a celebratory way with a kind of positive mark, but not so much in this occasion. While palms and other leaves were used on festive occasions, we see that in Leviticus 23, we see it in Nehemiah 8, particularly in the celebration of the Feast of Booths. It's very likely that here, between their calling out Hosanna, meaning save us, O Lord, their identification of Jesus as a king, the king of Israel, and their waving of the branches, they're all pointing to a kind of nationalism, a kind of national pride. Israel, throughout her history, often went astray when instead of being a light to the world, a light to foreign, even wicked nations, they used their light to serve their own pride. The New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says this, when the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era prior to Christ, palms were used in the celebration. During both major wars with Rome, reliefs of palms were stamped on the coins minted by the rebels. Thus, this act of celebration with palms is by no means neutral. The palm symbolizes Israel's national hopes, now focused on Jesus. Indeed, about 150 years prior to Christ in his coming, the Jewish leader, Simon Maccabeus, had driven out Syrian forces from Israel. And when he did so, There was celebration not only with music, but with the waving of palms. So the waving of palms, we might say, could be similar to the waving of a national flag. Israel at this point had spiraled downward and was at a very low point in the first century. It was a state of great corruption. The people were looking for a national hero, a political liberator, The people failed to understand the nature of Christ's kingship and his kingdom in the world. What he came to do and the kind of kingdom he inaugurated. And there's an all-important lesson for God's people in this. There's a principle. It's a temptation. It's the temptation often at work in our hearts. And that is the temptation to use the gospel to use the Lord Jesus Christ to promote some other cause. To use him for some other personal agenda or to associate him with a particular political group at the rejection of another. Or to think he has favorites when it comes to nations in the world. This is the king of all kings 
This is the Lord of all lords and all nations. He's the ruler of all. Pastor Joseph Ryan said this, the controlling issue in many Christians' lives is a personal agenda. They want Jesus to fit into their plans, their hopes, their ambitions. In the end, there's only two choices. Either we use Jesus for our ends, or Jesus uses us for his ends. Those are words worth considering, because our own joy, our own blessing is what's at stake. Have, have you noticed in your Christian life, our Lord will often give us a lot of rope in going astray? He'll permit it. In going after our own agendas or selfish ambitions, even sinful paths. He may give us a lot of rope, but he will not bless us in that path. We can seek to be our own kings. But the wonderful thing about our Lord is that he is immutable. He is unchanging. He didn't come as some kind of chameleon king, adapting his kingdom and purpose to our life ambitions. He's such a greater king than that. So much better than that. He doesn't give to us what we think we want. He gives to us what we truly need of himself, a good and gracious king and a glorious kingdom. The crowds do not understand. Even the disciples were told in Luke 18, astonishing words, really, that when Jesus taught them, as he had on a number of occasions, that the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and on the third day be raised, Luke's gospel says, quote, they understood none of these things. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Yet the nature of our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem here begins to reveal more of who he is, what his kingdom is about. And it's seen by his choice of animal upon which to ride into the city. Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. He comes riding a, an animal used to bear burdens, a beast of burden, we could say. He doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on an animal used to carry burdens. An animal known to communicate peace. And that's precisely what our Lord Jesus was entering the city ultimately to do. He comes to carry a burden. It's a burden you and I cannot bear the burden of our guilt, the burden of ongoing shame, the burden of sin. Yes, Christ's kingdom speaks to and influences the things of this world. Yes, it speaks, this kingdom speaks to marriage, to family, to society, to justice. This king and kingdom speaks to government, presidents, kings, to money, Values to art and entertainment, to relationships, to vocation and calling in life. This kingdom speaks to all of those things. In a word, we could say this kingdom has teeth. It has grip in the world. As Jesus put it, his kingdom is like yeast working through dough, or like a small mustard seed, tiny but grows and progresses into something larger and greater. 
how tempting it can be to think, I know, Jesus brought a spiritual kingdom. But the kingdom or nation of a president or a prime minister or the kingdoms represented in the politics of this world, they are the ones that seem to have the real teeth, the real power, the real influence. That's a temptation. Yet what kingdom has lasted like that of our Lord's? What kingdom goes beyond one nation or border or language like that of the kingdom of Christ? What kingdom reaches beyond the governance of a nation and can transform the very heart of a man or woman, a boy or girl? What kind of kingdom unites a people, not around race, sex, class, or education, but around this king whose blood cleanses everyone of his own? What king not only gives you access into his presence, but who, according to Revelation 5, makes his people kings, rulers, and priests to rule with him? Every president, prime minister, leader, king has an agenda. Christ has the greatest, the most grand global agenda. And I want to provide, as we come to a close, a few hooks upon which to hang aspects of his kingdom. A few. First, Christ's kingship and kingdom is a public matter. He didn't come as a king in a private, secret, undisclosed way. He came for all to see. From his triumphal entry all the way to the cross, his life and sacrificial death was on display. His kingdom was announced for all to hear. And he calls us to live in like manner when he says, let your light shine before men. Or you are the light of the world. We are to make known this king and his kingdom, whether it's in our marriage or family or workplace, conversations, we're to reflect the truth and grace of this glorious king. Secondly, Christ's kingdom and kingship is a national and a global matter. Civil leaders and civil magistrates, whether in America or in any nation, carry out their civic calling as servants of Christ. Romans 13 tells us there's no civil authority that has been instituted by God that has not been instituted by God. And every civil servant is a servant of God, Paul, Paul says. Thus we have that warning in Psalm 2. Now, O kings of the earth, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, the anointed one lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And we as the church are called to be that voice that proclaims Christ's kingship and kingdom as the conscience that serves as the conscience to all earthly authorities. Finally, his kingship is a very personal matter for all of us. We might ask, well, where is the triumph in this triumphal Entry. 
The, the irony, which John seems to intend, is that really the wonderful triumph is not found in the grand entry, but in this grand exit. The crowds, they hail him as king as he enters a city, but his triumph is seen, for those of faith, as he exits as the Lamb of God. Sacrifice for his people. This is where he would be headed to that cross, as we remember and celebrate this Passion Week, to that place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, to a cross. And it's where he calls each one of us. Our Lord's kingship, his lordship in our lives, it's not a volunteer kind of calling, it's not optional. He knows what is best for his people. And his glorious lordship is best for us. So I don't know what your expectations are of Christ, how he might work in your life, but this is a king whose very presence, whose very rule, whose very grace, he can instill in our hearts. So we return, as we heard earlier, to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. A picture of the city gates of Jerusalem opening up. A picture of the temple doors, the sanctuary doors opening up. And perhaps an application, a picture of us opening the doors of our hearts, that the King of all creation, the King of glory, may come and dwell within. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your, your kingdom and your kingship is such a grand theme, a weighty theme. One you've not only revealed to us in your word, but one you've called us to, to make known, to yield in our own lives to. Oh Lord, we pray that you would Continue to teach us and shape us according to this kingdom. This kingdom that has uh, penetrated this world. This kingdom that is progressive and growing. But this kingdom that is its own. And we as your church are citizens of that kingdom. How we praise you for that gracious and glorious work. And, and yet, Lord, we pray that you would give us the mercy and the sufficient grace uh, to, to herald that, that news, uh, to, to be ambassadors and representatives of this unique kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, where there is grace, where there is salvation and righteousness, justice and holiness, a kingdom where people truly come to know who they are, who they were called to be uh, through your redemptive work. We give you thanks for your work in us, uh, by your spirit and by your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.